Hi, I'm Dave, and you're listening to Making Problems to Solve, a podcast about curiosity, creativity, and problem solving. Today, I'm talking to the multi-instrumentalist and podcasting legend, George Schraub. How are you doing? Legend? Oh, you're, so you're overselling it already. We're already, <laughs> it's just now people are going to expect some kind of wisdom, and that's just not happening. So, no, that's very kind of you. I'm doing well, Dave. How are you? Oh, good. Thanks. So, uh, the reason why I wanted to have you on the show, well, besides just your, you know, your career of uh, music and podcasting and just uh, comedy and all that, uh, you on your episode 799 of the Geologic Podcast, you uh, in the cold open, you made a bunch of jokes about uh, people who make videos, uh, who make things, you know, if it's a, you know, some kind of craft or something. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you had a pretty funny commentary on that. And I just uh, basically because a lot of the people that I've come to know uh, online are people who identify as makers, you know, as in uh, Maker Fair, you know, sure, <laughs> sure, that kind of thing. And, you know, and the creative people who, you know, provide a lot of, uh, you know, education and just information sharing. And there's a lot more depth into what they do. And, um, you know, so as creative people, there's, you know, a lot of connections between any different kind of creative person, whether they're a puppet maker or a chef or, you know, a biologist, all these different, uh, connections. Sure. so wanted, and I haven't really talked to any musicians yet. So I thought I'd, uh, kind of talk to you about it. You wanted to ask me if I knew anybody you could talk to probably, that was probably your, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, any, uh, talented uh, musicians. Yes. Yeah, so I'll let you know. I have a list. I can, I can reach out No, right. so on that, on that show 799. Yeah. I, I was just, I was commenting on the second person in all those videos, the cooking videos and the how to do videos that think they're helping by kind of asking questions. And it's just so obviously uh, uh, manipulated and kind of a plant and just asking questions that are either just repeat what has just happened, you know? So it's like, yeah. And then just open up the can. Oh, so you're going to open up the can. Yeah. I'm going to open up the can. <laughs> that to me is, just, I, I love that kind of stuff watching. Cause it's, it's the guys under the guise of being inquisitive and creative but it's actually like the exact opposite. It's just kind of this rote motions of inquisitiveness as opposed to actual inquisitiveness uh, that to me, I find greatly entertaining to just kind of watch and, and see it sort of train wreck itself in, in its own sort of, in its own sort of way. So, but yeah, it's, it is amazing that there is such a, such a connection between um, the, the sort of the, the thematic nature of creativity which I think is what you're all about in terms of this show, it, describing, like you said, whether we, whether someone is uh, fabricating puppets or whether someone is making a souffle or, you know, inventing. I just today I was watching. Um, I'm surprised I hadn't watched this before, but there is a lovely like six part um, docuseries on Disney about uh, ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, the beginnings of Industrial Light and Magic and how, it was this amalgam of people thrown together that really both had a great idea of what they were doing and no idea what they were doing. And it was the perfect synthesis of technical prowess being used in completely creative and different ways. And so when that first, you know, when they were making Star Wars, you know, no one had done what they were doing with the motion control cameras. And so I watched the first two episodes of that today. And boy, talk about the creative process being absolutely pushed to its to its ultimate, you know, where you have uh, stop motion guys and uh, camera guys and photographers and set designers and uh, fabricators. And it's like, we have to make a Death Star 
and make it look like it's the size of a planet. How do we do that? Uh, I don't know. Well, we could do this. Oh, we could do this. Or we could do this. Oh, we only have two weeks to do it, by the way, and our budgets run out. You know, it's yeah. it's and to see the uh, creative landmine or creative grenades they have to kind of uh, deal with. Um, boy, just fascinating. Yeah, for sure. It, that's, um, you know, people who work in special effects and props and stuff like that, a lot of them do bring in you know, skills from all their different, you know, they could have had 20 different jobs and each one, you know, would bring in different skills. And every time they learn something, you know, they're, you know, adding to you know, their arsenal of right. different creative problem solving. You know? Right. There was one gentleman, I forget his name, Richard, Richard something, Robert something. He was a camera operator and he had had a series of jobs. And it turns out not only did he work on Star Wars, this was the guy that invented the pig nose amplifier. I don't know if to your, if you're a guitarist, or if you know any guitarists, but yep. in the seventies, there was this lovely miniature amp that was called a pig nose that was a portable. And it gave you this amazing distorted fuzz, concentrated fuzz tone. This guy invented that. Not just that, he he designed the Star Trek font. Oh wow! That's, that's still used today. The same dude that's working on you know camera camera gear for the first Star Wars made the Star Trek font because he was working at some company where he was doing design. And in his spare time, because he liked guitarists and he played the ukulele, he was like, "Oh, we should make a little portable amplifier." It became Pignos. Like that's the same dude did all that. I love guys like that, polymaths like that, that are just about creativity and problem solving. That's that's really cool. Uh, Star Trek's a, a really interesting connection because I know you've talked about it before. Uh, watching Star Trek Next, Next Generation, um, that you know, just the people were always like just competent and just watching them do their jobs well. Total total competency porn. I mean, total competency porn, and that's that's what I love so much about Next Generation as opposed to some of the other shows, or other even science fiction or other shows in general. Um, it's just, it's like to see people doing what they do and do it really well. I mean, I watched The Repair Shop. I don't know if you've ever seen this show. It's called The Repair Shop. It's a it's a British show. I don't know if it's BBC or if it's, you know, Thames or whatever, whatever mm-hmm. Sky One, whatever they have. It's available on, uh, on Netflix. There's a couple seasons. And I think Discovery Channel was playing some of them. And all it is, is it's people bring old items to this collection of uh, repair people. There's like the, there's the gentleman who's great at making, you know, fixing clocks. So he's tiny, tiny, intricate gear work. There's a woman that's the leather, she does leather repair. So she'll, she'll take a hundred year old briefcase and make it look like it was made yesterday. There's Mm -hmm. a a pair of women that do, that do doll work. So they'll take stuffed animals and they'll rescue these stuffed animals that, you know, and these people bring these items that you think there is no way there's going to be any kind of restoration possible or even maintenance possible. And through their sheer expertise and diligence and, and delicate dedication, they fix these things and you sit there and you can't believe that it's the same rabbit, you know, that was in the the woman's grandmother's house that was bombed by the Nazis in 1941 and was on fire. And she saved it in a paper bag for 70 years. And and, and it's like, she pulls this velveteen rabbit out and they're like, wow, how did you, it's so enticingly wonderful to watch. Like to me, it's so exciting just to see expertise at its absolute finest. So much so that on my next record, I I wrote a song about it because it was like, it was such a great, it's called, how, how did you do it? 
where it's like, how did, how did you, how did you manage to do this thing with a smile and, uh, and just with expertise? So yeah, that, that again, that their, their expertise triggers my creativity, which then makes me go like, well, that deserves a song. If anyone deserves a song, it's the people working at the repair shop. Wow. I haven't seen that, but I heard of it. So I definitely sounds like I need to check it out. It's super cool. It's, and it's just so English. It's so bloody English, which is just, you know, tea sets and, and cricket bats and they're bringing all this stuff. And I I think I've mentioned this on, on my podcast, but my, my favorite is like when they reveal these fixed items, you want the person that's getting the item to, to just be overwhelmed and be like, Holy crap. How did you, uh?" and, but they're so English. It's always like, Oh, that's lovely. Oh, that's oh, that's wonderful. And you're like, no, they you had you had two ashes and an eraser, and they made an entire Mona Lisa out of that. Like, but it's just so British, and it's wonderful. It's just wonderful. But there's oh. there's you know I gotta say there's like tears often. Sometimes people reconnect because mm-hmm. they have this you know there, there's a connection with objects. So if it's your grandfather's magnifying glass, or if it's your grandmother's tea set, or whatever you know that's been broken and sitting in a bag, or you broke it when you were a six year old kid. And now all this time later, you're getting it repaired. There's this uh, interesting connection that they can bring that out and have the reactions that they do have. It's just, it's just magical and wonderful. I'm going off. I know I'm going on to ask me a question. I give you a tangent. I'm just going off tangent, but it's just, if if your viewer, if your listeners haven't checked out the repair shop, watch a couple episodes because it's wonderful. It'll, it'll, it'll revalue your, uh, your, your love of humanity. I promise. Great. Yeah, we'll have to. Uh, I'll put a link if I can find one and uh, Sweet. recommend people check that out. Uh, I'm sure going to take a look at it. Uh, so, one of the things that I usually like to find out is how people got the way they are. How did you get to <laughs> get to where you are? Um, <laughs> Who's so, at fault? Who's know, to blame for this now? Right. So, I know you're, you're a drummer mainly, it's your principal instrument, correct? That's right. I studied, yeah, yeah I have a degree in music, uh, a bachelor's in music performance for percussion. So, yeah. Percussion. Okay. <laughs> not drums, no, no, drums is drums. No, it's drums, yeah. But it's drums the, the, the piece of paper says percussion, so I gotta say percussion. Okay. It's, it's drums, right. yeah. Yeah, um, and you started doing that when you were a kid, right? Because I know your dad's also a drummer. That's right. He was my first teacher. He taught me when I was seven. I started taking lessons with him, and uh, I think I had my first gig when I was eight. So yeah, that's the way. It wow, is. It's just that's drums, incredible. So. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So, uh, what other kind of creative activities did you get up to when you were a kid? Uh, I always loved. You know, to me, the idea of performing was kind of this all-encompassing beast, whether it meant music, whether it meant being silly in front of people, whether it meant acting, whether it meant dancing, um, doing sketches. I mean, it's it's interesting that I can see – that's why podcasting for me was such a beautiful culmination of sort of skill sets that I had because it involves every aspect of my creative nature – for whatever that's worth. But, uh, I mean, I would, I would do these crazy, you know, back when phone messages, when you had a phone, a phone machine, you know, right. a, a answering machine with a tape in it, I would do these little productions of that, like to make, so someone was calling, it would be this interesting little, and I realized like years later, like, oh, I was, I was doing little podcasts. I was doing these sort of miniature <laughs> 60 second podcasts to entertain someone that was calling my house if I wasn't there. I would do mixtapes where I would do, you know, between songs, I would do characters and sketches or do imitations of things. Um, back when we had to actually record cassettes and you would give it to, to friends as mixtapes. Um, I was on student council, so we got to do presentations, you know, in high school. So we would do sketches. 
I was vice president and the president, we were good friends and we would, we would do sketches in the morning. We'd have morning meeting and do sketches. Um, that was always, or I'd do a song or I'd do an impression of David Byrne or I'd, you know, do an impression of Max Hedrum or whatever it was. So it was always this idea of how can I deliver a performance to a bunch of people so that I can hear their applause and feel okay for, for 10 seconds and think I'm actually worth something before I go back to realizing I'm a, I'm, I'm worthless. You know, that's, that's, it's, it's just, it's trying to find accolades, Dave. It's trying to find meaning and accolades from wherever I can find it. Cause you know, I'm so desperate for acceptance and, and <laughs> happiness. No. So it's just, I mean, and again, I would, I would dance like a maniac cause that was just fun. Um, and then when I, you know, I took a couple of guitar lessons when I was probably in eighth grade, didn't really stick for whatever reason. But then when I was in college, my roommate was a guitarist. And so his guitar was always in the room. I started playing guitar. I had to learn, you know, piano a bit more, more seriously. There were no bass players at college. So the, the jazz professor came to me and he said, can you learn, learn bass and learn these to play bass on these five tunes? Because we need a bass player for this one, this one group. Are you interested? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll try to figure it out. Okay. So I learned to play you know, really poor, mediocre bass at the time. I've gotten a little bit better in the following 30 years. But uh, it was always just sort of like, you want to try this? Oh, okay, yeah, sure, I'll try it, sure. You want to do a, you want to do a radio show at the college? Sure. You want to do a radio show here locally? Um, you know, uh, just as in, in Bethlehem, when the students go away from college and there's a college radio station, you want to, yeah, I'll, yeah, sure, I'll do that. So it was just kind of this, this pursuit of performance opportunities. Um, and, you know, what's also fun about that is like when I do a show, let's say, let's say like I'm coming for my CD release concert, which is going to be in April coming up for my, for my eighth or seventh studio record. Um, like I'm going to build the sets. I'm going to design the lighting. I'm going to make the poster. I'm going to do the packaging for the CD. Right. And it's all, it's all the same. It's all the same buffet. You know, it's all the entertainment buffet. It's just different bowls of creativity that I have to kind of latch into. So just yesterday, I spent six hours. Uh, I had this idea to do a little, like an abstract design for each one of those 14 songs on the album. So for each each song, I did a little abstract piece of art that then will be inserted into the program notes and we'll make a poster out of it. So I was sitting here with, with, a, with a, I got this whole slew of markers here, sure. just designing and hand drawing for about six and a half hours. I did these things. And I loved it. I got lost. You know, you know that creative thing where when you're really firing on all cylinders, um, what is it? Kandinsky called it flow, right? Right. Into that flow. And you just, you know, I started at 11.15. And then when I looked up, it was 6.30, 6.45, you know, and my, my left hand, my writing hand was numb. I'm thinking like, why, why is my, why is my hand? All right. I've been, I've been drawing for six and a half hours. That's why my hands numb. but it's the best feeling when you get kind of lost in it. And, um, yeah, I, 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 I've been very fortunate that I've gotten to really flex all these different creative, creative muscles. And it's all just in the, in the guise of, of hopefully entertaining people. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. I didn't ever realize that, you know, that you took on all these different roles. Um, <laughs> you have to, cause you know, there's yeah. no, there's no money. There's no budget. Right. <laughs> there's no, there's no, there's no record label support. There's no, you, there's nothing. So it's just like, I, I gotta, I gotta make a poster. You know, luckily Ms. Ms. Info, Donna McGavro, who's my, my, one of my closest and dearest friends, 
you know, she she uh, gives her design expertise just because she loves to do it. It gets to stretch her creativity in a different way, which is always mm-hmm. fun too. Which is a which is a nice thing, you know. Again, when you want to take advantage of creative people, when you if you have a project, let's say, and you want to, you can't offer people, you know, a, a remuneration. Let's say, always try if you can, obviously. But if you can't, what you can offer them is an opportunity to to stretch their creative muscles, to to do something outside of their comfort zone or outside of their everyday. So, because I know Donna is not designing CDs, she's not creating posters for a pseudo rock and roll band kind of thing. Um, and I'll get, and I'll come up with some concept which is very strange or very outside, where it's like you know Manila envelopes embossed manila envelopes how do we do that and she has to go oh that sounds fun okay how do how right. do we do that or we've got a hundred bucks and we got to make some kind of huge set dressing for the stage like what do we do so i talk to a buddy who's a carpenter or something you know and i say what could we, you know what what ideas oh we're going to use insulated foam because it's cheap and it's big and you can cut it with a knife and that you know so take advantage of or musicians you know like hey i don't want you to play these same 20 songs that you've been playing your whole life because you're in a cover band, you know, we're going to do some weird covers. We're going to do some fun stuff. I want you to sing. Maybe you'll play an instrument. You're not, not your main instrument all to, to all to entice people to kind of work for you and do stuff. The studio where I work, where I do the recordings, another super close friend of mine, if you listen to the show, you know, Slough is the engineer. And I think Slough gets a chance to, you know, stretch his, muscles his his, his uh, engineering muscles where i'll go can we make this sound like it's 600 of me uh, underwater like how do we do that and he'll right. th- go i've never tried that before let's let's and then to him it's interesting and fun because I, I i can't i can't pay him one scintilla of what he's worth i mean i try to give as much as i possibly can but because he's so talented but to him the appeal is that he gets to then be creative and have this project to say yeah i worked on this thing you know uh, going back to Donna, we did a, you know, we did our, it was a, the fifth album uh, in Terabang that, you know, we, we, we designed together and it won national design awards. I mean, we won a national design award. The Addy is this uh, organization for advertising. It, it won her a gold Addy, you know? So like you can't buy that, right? But you can provide someone an opportunity to maybe win, you know, uh, my last record too won some design awards for her as well. So it's like that kind of thing is is a is a lovely opportunity to help people that you know or that you think are creative and to involve them in what you're doing and sure. uh, have them sort of yeah, again stretch their creativity as much as possible. Yeah, because presenting that unique challenge gives them the ability to like solve a problem that they wouldn't normally see in their everyday. That's it, work. man. It's all problem solving. That's that's the other fascinating thing, right? When you really break it all down. It's all it's all problem solving. How do you make the cake rise to the right way you know what's the what's the you know what's the egg substitute what how do we make these hinges quiet how do we you know how do you make the chorus that third chorus interesting because you've already heard the words twice before what do we do it's all problem solving which to you know it's all puzzles and sometimes if you can if you can remember that because there's this there can be this daunting nature to creativity of like you know you see a blank page and you go uh, like I got nothing. Yeah, I got nothing. I got. I just got nothing. You know, I write a letter every week to my to my sub- subscribers, and it's just every week I look at this blank page and I go, 
I have nothing left to talk about. I got, I've got 803 shows, 800 plus hours of stuff that I've been talking out of my butt for, for 16 years. Like I got nothing left, but then you just think, well, what's the problem we want to solve? We want to communicate something. We want to highlight something. We want to get something across, find the problem, fix the problem. It's nice. Yeah. And it's just interesting how like, you know, you're, your whatever the jazz instructor said, Hey, can you play bass? And you're mm-hmm. like, I'll, I'll try you. You like jump at these chances to yeah. try to figure something out. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and sometimes it's awful and you go, <laughs> okay, well that, that didn't work, but I, I did learn, you know, 5% of it was okay. And now I can build on that 5%. You know, it wasn't 80% or 90% successful. It was 5% successful. I can build on that now. And it's, yeah, it's the cliche of, you know, the power of saying yes. It's like, yeah, yeah, I, I can, I can try that. I can try that. Especially early on, especially when you're, when you're establishing who you are, which like, you don't really know who you are until you're yeah 30, maybe. And even 50, then, whatever, <laughs> 50. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm still waiting on some level too. It's like, I'm waiting for the adult license to arrive. I keep applying and it's like, yeah. I keep checking the mailbox and it's just not there. But, um, to be able to, and, and I love stories of people that take completely different paths. You know, I have a good friend. She was a, she was a surgeon. She was a surgeon until she was 52 successful surgeon. She was doing, uh, uh, all kinds of stuff. And then just was like, was an amateur flute player. She had played in local sort of orchestras and student orchestras and things. And she's like, yeah, I want to do flute. Wow. And she switched over and she's been running this amazing uh, nonprofit arts company. And she, for the last, gosh, 15 years, she's in her 60s now. And um, she did it. She wow. does, she does whatever, 40 shows a year with 50 shows a year with the thing and, and, you know, different flute repertoire. And she learned how to play Japanese flute, the Sakohachi, Shakohachi. Uh, she okay. taught herself, basically she took lessons and taught herself to do that. So she's like one of the best Shakohachi players in the country because there's only seven, yeah. you know? Um, and I'm like, she's always the example of it. it's never too late, especially with things like music, you know, especially with things like creative endeavors. It's like, yeah, if you want to be a football player at 60, that's going to be tough. That's going to be right. tough. But if you want to write a play or you want to be an actor or you want to be a chef or whatever, you know, there's, there's always, it's never too late, which I think doesn't get communicated very often in our culture of like, no, it's, it's okay. I mean, the Marx brothers were 40 when they had their first successful film. Uh, Lucille Ball, she was, she was 41 when she had her first kid. Wow. You know, back then too, which was like Mm -hmm. crazy. So there's, there are examples of people being able to be creative far, far into their lives and take complete 90 degree turns from what, from what they're doing and, and succeed at it. Uh, Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of people um, who discover whatever kind of creative projects, uh, you know, maybe they're either they're retiring or they're just, you know, they're getting older and they have, okay, now I have. I have money. I have spare time. My kids are in college. So then they start exploring these things and they can become like, you know, uh, you know, learn a lot of new skills that, you know, they didn't realize that they were even interested in. A lot of people start that creative journey, you know, as, you know, an older adult and they never didn't have a history of, you know, being creative, doing interested in art or music or whatever. But 
it's it's in there somewhere. You just have to find it. It can be. Yeah, it can be. Why not? Sure. And you mentioned puzzles before, and one of the things I think you talked about, I couldn't find the original reference, but uh, <laughs> um, when you worked, uh, you were with the Philadelphia Funk Authority. Yeah. So it's, uh, basically, what? how would you describe that? You're probably better at it than I am. The, the that band or the puzzle yeah, aspect of the it? band oh the band was a was a nine piece uh, soul r and b funk band that I was with for twenty twenty almost twenty five years wow um playing all just really really fun dance funk uh party music uh but actually playing it you know no sequencers no click tracks no pre recorded stuff um all that wonderful earth wind and fire and Stevie Wonder and James Brown, really, really fun stuff. Stuff that I was not really into when I first started playing with the band. I, I liked it. I just never really played it. I was I was a brush prog head coming into it. So, you know, like the police, I like talking heads. Never played a James Brown song in my life. Never played a Stevie Wonder song, really. Never played a Motown song in my life and discovered all that with that band and how great that stuff is. So that, yeah, I was kind of the, about four or five years in, I, I kind of became the musical director of that. Right. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, and so you talked about just like creating a set list as kind of puzzle. Right. Again, problem solving. You know, okay, we've got we've got X amount of time. We have this large of a crowd. Um, they're this demographic. How do we entertain them maximally? How do we how do we design this experience to be one that isn't overwhelming, isn't underwhelming? That's the last thing you want, <laughs> but that has kind of a flow to it. You know, so I would, I developed this, this, you know, rudimentary system, but this idea of sort of setting up, okay, I knew we do about 16 songs an hour, 15 to 16 songs an hour was kind of the thing. And you're going to have this flow. You're going to come out real hard. You know, if you're doing a concert, if you're in front of people uh, and they're seated and you're going to be, it's a park concert or a festival or something like that, you got to come out strong. Bam, here we are. Ba-boom. Um, and then you you know, hit them with two or three up front that are really big. You bring it back for a second and you kind of build the slow back arc back up to a big thing and then back down and then back up again because you don't want to you don't want to live here, but you want to have a little bit of a thing. Whereas if it's a party, let's say, you know, people are gonna be sitting at their table and they're eating, you know, and having their drinks. You don't want to come out and go, bam, here we are. You want to be like, okay, we're gonna build into it slow, give you two or three chances to realize there's a band here. Oh, there's a band here. Oh, this is kind of the and then you get them going, and then by this point they should be on the dance floor, and then you take off. So that to me was always it was a pain, but it was part of the gig and it was part of the fun of learning, like, oh, this works, like these kinds of things work. And then to take the band's position into account as well, so that we never did the same thing. All those all those uh, factors had to be filled, whether it's a concert or a private thing or a small thing or 45 minutes or two hours. But I never wanted to do the same set. And we literally never did the same set twice in the 25 years I was there. Wow. Um, because, I, because I wanted, again, the people that are in the ensemble, I want them to not be on autopilot or be bored or be thinking like, okay, we're in the sixth tune. The sixth tune is always the same thing. There were certain you know, maybe strings of songs that we put together that would work. But that to me was the ultimate channel challenge was to keep, you know, we had a hundred songs, 110 songs in a repertoire. How do we maintain the structure that I want in terms of big opening, and then a ballad and then a thing. And then, and then you can't have the same person, you know, we have five singers in the band. You can't have the same person sing five songs in a row because the other singers are going to be basically just sort of watching. 
Plus it's bad. You know, you don't want to stress the person's voice. So we have to mix that up. Horn features. Does this sax solo get too many solos? Does the guitarist have too many solos? It's all of these factors that go into it. And it became kind of this really fun weekly puzzle to try to solve. And uh, uh, I got I got pretty good at it. And I think I think the band appreciated it. And I think the audience appreciated it too. That if you came to see us, you know, I would save set lists. That was everything. You know, we play a festival and I know that, okay, last year I saved the set list from last year and we opened up with, you know, whatever, uh, Sex Machine. So we're not, we're not going to open the show again at the same location with the same song because right. you just don't want to – like you don't want to do that because the people, people there will most likely be some of the same people. And you don't want it to be like, oh, they're opening the Sex Machine again. Okay, yeah, whatever. Or they're going to close. They always, yeah, they always end with this song. It's like, eh, okay, yeah, whatever. You know, <laughs> which it's okay to have some signature things like that. But for me, I just wanted it to be interesting and fresh. And people would say, like, you guys always play different stuff. You know, other other bands sometimes, especially in the same kind of uh, uh, range that we were performing in, had kind of like, you know, you would see them on Wednesday and you'd see them on Friday at a festival and it was the same set. And you'd be like, you know, and, and they'd be great, but it's just like to me, that's not as interesting or as challenging or as rewarding to the people that are performing it. Yeah, who are, it's just as important that they be into it as as the people in the audience, which I think gets lost sometimes with professional musicians, especially where it's just like, yeah, I, I'm not going to be as interested in this as the people that that are hearing it. And that to me is the that's the worst. That's the worst because that's the death of creativity and the death of any kind of artistic endeavor you know where you where there's a rokeness to it yeah i'm just like oh i know this works i'll just do this it's like uh, it's good enough you know good enough in a performance as someone who has based his whole life on performance opportunity you know that's a sacred space you know for someone who doesn't believe in any kind of deity any kind of supernatural anything you know i'm very straightforward in terms of not believing in any kind of supernatural anything however if you're on stage, and Robert Fripp talks about this, Robert Fripp, the guitarist from King Crimson, talks about this a lot. It is a sacred space. And it could be a sacred space in your wood shop. It can be a sacred space in your kitchen. It can be a sacred space in your sewing circle or whatever it may be. But it's a sacred space that you've come to participate in a ritual, you know, which is as meaningless or as meaningful as anything in this life is. Because you provide sure. a meaning to it, which is necessary, which is so, which is so curious too. Because like, yeah, oh, who cares? It's just a, it's just a bar gig. It's like, well, yeah, but that bar gig is as equally important as a presidential inauguration to the people that are doing it. If you decide, I mean, ultimately, it's all, it's all nothing. It's all going to fade. It's all, we're all just ether. You know, it's all mm -hmm. nothing ultimately. So why not take moments that you can embrace and provide them with a sacred nature and you know i get funny looks sometimes where i would you know i would i would with, with fellow performers just be like we gotta be you know this is just because you're good at what you do doesn't mean you can just slack off and kind of glide through it you know right. this is a sacred thing we're doing so that's me and, and people that i've worked with uh repeatedly have that same attitude and those are the people that tend to be more successful go figure no it's just Right. If anybody who is doing a job, if they're doing the exact same thing every day, it's it's boring. It doesn't because you get to perform on a stage doesn't mean that, you know, don't still desire that, you know, some kind of novel 
challenge. Sure. Yeah. Sure. There, I mean, there is a, there is a Zen nature to, to ritualistic repeating, you know, there, there, right. there is an appeal, you know, you do your yoga poses same way every time. And there's, there is kind of a, you turn your active mind off and you sort of do this thing. And there is, you know, I love washing dishes. It's this weird <laughs> thing of like, I love having a big party, you know, hosting a bunch of people. And they're always like, you don't use your washing, you don't use your dishwasher. Like I've never used my dishwasher in 30 years of living in this place. I've never used it once. Because I like that kind of, I'm like almost earning the, the meal, you know, like, because it's very, it's kind of zen. It's the same, you know, after hosting 26 people for Thanksgiving, the next day I do, I wash dishes for two hours and I just, you don't love it, but there is this thing to it. That's just like, okay. Cause it's not creative. It's not mm -hmm. what we're talking about. It's a different kind of ritual. It's a different sort of um, participatory activity that just puts you into a, you know, it's like chopping wood or, or whatever. And I love folding laundry. It's really right. weird. Like I like folding laundry. There's this thing of like, for, I mean, you're getting laundry, which is great when you're done, you know, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to you sit down and try to write a song for an hour. There's no guarantee you're going to get anything. But when right. you do laundry at the end of doing laundry, you've got clean laundry. It's pretty cool. You know, or like at the end of doing dishes, you've got clean dishes. So it's nice that there's that reward. Um, but it is nice to turn your brain off and just sort of have this like this repetitive thing. So that's, but in a sacred space of performance, that's, that's, that's not what you want. That's not what you want or not what right, I want. Yeah. No. Yeah. You don't want to, that's not the place where you want to, you know, turn off all of your creativity. Right. Um, you know, because yeah, again, even when you're performing with other people, you know, you have to, you're interacting with them. It's a, you know, it's a group activity, right. group experience. Hopefully, you know? hopefully. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing, you know, really for the audience. I've noticed this. It was interesting. Um, for most of my life, I wasn't interested in, um, you know, like uh, theater or musical theater or anything. Mm. And then my kid was interested in it. So I started going to <laughs> some musicals. And it is it is like an interesting, like shared experience there that. Oh, absolutely. It's exactly the same as going to like a rock concert or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, it's it's, you know, because again, no one else is going to see this performance that yes. you're, you're seeing right now. Yes. that And then in today's world with all of the, you know, that everyone has a 21st century television studio in their hand. Yep. You know, which is, which is phenomenal. It's, it's, it's an absolute miracle. But the special and uniqueness of events just happening in their own space gets less and less. And so I've, you know, I've, I've had this idea of, I mean, I, I like a lot of artists now where, you know, you come to a show and you have to put your phone in a bag. They seal it in a little, little like, uh, um, like a radio silence bag and you get yeah. the bag back after the show or whatever. It's kind of cool so that, you know, what we're experiencing here is just happening for us and you get to be in the moment and then experience it. And that's, and you're never going to have that again. And that's kind of nice. It's kind of nice, especially in the, the way that things are now. So what uh, son, daughter, what, what are you, what is your, what is your kid? Uh, son. Uh, what, what, what shows has he done? Um, oh, he didn't, he, he's just, we just went to shows. Oh, went to shows. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Oh, cool. Oh, great. Yeah. What's, what stood out? What, what, what did he particularly like? Was, was there one or two that like really stood out? Um, trying to remember. Oh, we, we've been to like a big variety. I mean, he was into uh, Hamilton. We did get to see that. Oh, sure. um, oh great. Yeah. Um, and 
we actually went to go see all the great comet, which is a pretty amazing show. Oh yeah. yeah actually yeah. where the audience is kind of like surrounding the stage. Right. That's, that's a really great show. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I finally saw Hamilton when it was on Disney right. and I was prepared for it. You know, I was prepared because it's so lauded. You're like, there's no right. way this could be as good as they're saying it is. There's just no way. There's just no way it could be. And yeah, it's as good as they say. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Okay. Talk about creativity, you know, talk about utilizing multiple streams of creative uh, uh, creation <laughs> to into, into something really different and new and exciting. Uh, boy, that was just something, you know, and again, just watching it on a TV, let alone I'm sure being in a theater and seeing that production is it's, it's its own special thing. Right. Because it's just at all the aspects of the production, there's so much going on right there and there's so many different elements uh, and I've listened to a bunch of podcasts just about the sure the uh, the you know the composer and you know uh, Lin Manuel Miranda and just talking yeah. about like how they how they built that show and it's pretty pretty amazing. But I've also seen uh, the color purple um, at oh, the yes. local theater in Schenectady and that's a wonderful in, show. It's uh, the uh, the way they staged it when we were there. The whole entire set is just chairs mm. and the cast rearranges the chairs for each scene Interesting. And that's it and so there's yeah. no backdrops or anything it's just and so going from the like the most simple basic uh you know i don't know what you call that but uh, <laughs> you know set or right stagecraft yeah yeah yeah. right into you know the biggest production uh, right rotating rotating right. hamilton stage yeah yeah, yeah multiple exactly. rotating, yeah so it's just amazing to see the different ways people can solve Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they're equally can be equally entertaining too, which is again the wonderful thing about live performances is you don't have to overwhelm with special effects or whatever you know. Again, which I love, but there's just the intimacy of a lot. I mean, one just a person on a stage. You know, when I when King Crimson was on tour, you know, in their fifty first year of existence. They performed as if they were in an orchestra. So they would walk out on onto the stage, flat lighting, and they'd play the show. There was no spots. There was no light stuff. It was like, we're going to make this music be the focus of what we're doing. And it was entertaining as all hell because it was just, you know, seven, eight guys at the absolute peak of their expertise just entered. At the very end of the show, uh, uh, a red light. So the whole stage got washed in red by the end, which again was so incredibly effective. It was the only lighting right. change in the entire show. So we had in a, what an hour and 45, two hour long show. The only lighting change to the very, very last song they were playing um, Starless and Bible Black. And this and the and the stage slowly just got more and more red, more and more red until it was just blood red till the very end of the thing. Whereas you know, you can have stage flashed and be red, you know, in the first 30 seconds of a program and you get, and you get inured to it because it's so overwhelming, you know? Right. Um, again, I love, I love great, well-lit design stuff like that. But when you hold back, sometimes you get this wonderful, it doesn't take that much then to make a difference. Uh, and then by the end, it's so effective because it's like the only change of the night. And now they're just covered in red and they're just burning. They're just playing the crap out of the song. And it's just fantastic, just really, really cool. And you go like, okay, it's possible. You can have a performance like this occur in, again, this sort of sacred space and uh, and, and really make it meaningful and, and, and special. 
to those that are in attendance. Yep. Yeah. And going back to like where I was listening to podcasts about how they produce Hamilton. I know you made, was it three episodes uh, with uh, Milton about um, your album? Oh goodness. Yes. Talk about endless blathering. Holy (laughs) smokes. Yes. I I find that stuff fascinating and I love getting into like the process of how, how anything is made. It doesn't matter what it is, cardboard box or uh, (laughs) an album or, and just, you know, just all the different decision-making and choices, uh, you know, and things that I would never know to look for. Right. And, and, and hopefully I think the way the people that are, the people that are successful in their endeavors tend to have reasons and rationale for the decisions that they've made. And people that tend to be less successful are ones that don't, at least, at least from my experience, like, why did you choose that guitar tone or why did you choose that word in the, in that line? And the person that can go, Oh, because it meant blah, 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 blah. Or yeah, because that guitar was the frequency met, matched the other, as opposed to, I, I don't know. I, I kind of, I, I liked it. I like, it which sometimes it's a good word. Sometimes it's a, it's a legit reason. I don't know. I just like it. That's a totally legit reason to make a decision creativity. But if everything you're doing is like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, it comes across. So I think there's a, there is a definite purpose to the problem solvings, to the solutions you come up with for the problems. Um, and it makes a cohesive experience. It makes a cohesive piece of art, a cohesive product that you're working on. And again, this can be a, a, a set, you know, a, a, a bed. It can be a, a gazebo. It's the right. same, it's the same stuff. It's the same, you know, why did you use the, the six and a half inch studs versus the four inch. Well, because this and this and that, and you go, oh, cool. As opposed to, ah, or, you know, it's all we could afford, which is a legit reason right. too. Like it's the, yep. it was, it's the strongest for the price. Great reason, you know, whatever yeah. it may be, but there is a reason. So that to me, and then, yeah. And Milton is so great. Milton Mermikades is so great and interested that he could say, you know, what's happening with that guitar? Cause it doesn't sound like a normal thing. Like, what did you do there? Why did you do that? Or yeah, lyrically, what were you, you know, I'm, I'm reading this lyric this way. Is that what you were thinking? And so to me, obviously I can just endlessly blather about that kind of stuff, which I just love. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I always wish that you guys would just start a podcast and just take apart. Uh, <laughs> We've talked about it. We've talked about of, it. Actually. You know, just anybody's album. Um, we and I don't know. About it. Yeah. It's yeah. funny. Like we're going to yeah. do it again for my next one. Uh, he oh, he cool. approached me. He was like, <laughs> let's do it. Like, like we'll do a video and we'll do like, we'll have examples on the screen. I'm like, dude, so there done. Absolutely. But we have talked about like having a song exploder, you know, with Milton and Geo, you know, yeah. A, a Brit and a twit talking about music or something, whatever, whatever we'd call it. But yeah. maybe we'll still do that. Yeah. Song Exploder is definitely a great one. Yeah. Um, just, just to hear again, the, the artists just talk about like what mm-hmm. they were thinking when, you know, all those pieces of the song put together and then they show all the different individual parts and then yeah. put the whole thing together. And when you listen to the song at the end, uh, you you're, can hear so much more and just, it's, Powerful. It's a different appreciation, you know. It's it's amazing how much you can appreciate something when you when you try to do it. Like I I did a play last year for the first time. I did I I got cast in Spamalot, which is the Monty Python play, and right. I'd never I'd been in the pit band forever. I'd played musicals before, you know, on drums. I'd never been on stage before, and you know, and saw what was involved in terms of the costume changing and the memorization and the rehearsing and all. 
And it's like you get such – I already had an appreciation for it. But oh my gosh, talk about expanding, you know, and it's like getting this inside, you know, this song exploder, play exploder experience. Where you go like, oh, okay, when you see people doing a really good job on stage, you realize what's involved, you know, just from my tiny, tiny little experience of it. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. It's just such a greater appreciation. Then when you see something done well, you just think, how is that? Gosh, how is that possible? With with all of the challenges that are involved, and how much of the how much of existence is working against you to do something well, especially in a in a creative endeavor, like because just the, mm-hmm. like the whole world is kind of against that on in many ways, you know, yeah. our our culture especially. And when it's done well, and when it's successful, or when it's uh, you know, and then popular, oh man, it's just encouraging. It's just really encouraging. That's cool. One of the things um, I just thought was interesting when you did uh, one song for all the elements in the periodic table. Yes. And how long did it take you to to compose all those? Well, that was I had I had finished an album uh, called Interrobang. That was my fifth album, and about a year or so went by, and um, I just couldn't write anything. I I just I was having a really hard time writing music. And I thought, like, I kept trying to write songs and nothing was happening. It just wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. And then I had listened to uh, John, not John Oliver, uh, um, John Hodgman. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know John Hodgman. Yes. John Hodgman had a series of books that were essentially fake encyclopedias. Right. So <laughs> absolutely brilliant. Really funny. Right up my alley in terms of the humor where he would just invent data about made up things, you know, like lists of presidents with hooks for hands, <laughs> you know, lists of American presidents. And he would list and he would tell these stories. Oh, Zachary Taylor lost his hand. And he would say how Zachary Taylor lost his hand and had a hook, for, you know, completely fabricated or, you know, the top hobo names, top 100 hobo names and their, yeah. and their etymology. And he'd make this, you know, it's just books of this. And I had the audio version of it because I like to, Back before podcasts, I would listen to stuff to go to sleep. I would put stuff on and listen to it to go to sleep. I had terrible insomnia for years, for decades. Finally learned if I listened to stuff, it would put me to sleep. So I'd put these things on. And in one of these, I forget which one it was, he had the, um, oh my gosh, uh, uh, Colton, Jonathan Colton was his musical sort of accompanist for a lot of the audio book versions. And at one point, Hodgman had a list of states. And he was talking about like, you know, not the state flower, but like the state alcohol and the state wrestling move or whatever, you know, again, totally (laughs) made up, fabricated fake. And for each introduction for each state, Jonathan Colton wrote a little song. It was this little quick 20 second, you know, oh, here's Alabama. Here's the theme to Mississippi. Here's the theme to New Jersey. I thought that's really clever. Like, that's really cool. Like, maybe I could do something like that just to write something that's of, of no consequence. He's done the states. Like, what else? What else is there? What could I do? Like the like the months. Well, no, there's only twelve. Like that. That'd be hard to do. And I thought, what if I did elements? There's 119 of these, and they can be five seconds long. And I've got the podcast. You know, I'll I'll write two or three a week, maybe, just to just to stretch the muscle, just to just to get in the habit of it, because it, it's inconsequential. Right. Um. Maybe I'll do ten. I'll do the, you know, I'll do the noble gases and I'll stop or whatever. Well, I started doing it. I would do three 
I would do another four, another three, another six, another five. And uh, within, goodness, I think in about six months, I had written all 119. And it was just, and it just like, it like detangled. It was like a shampoo that detangled your hair. Remember that? Remember back when we used to use shampoo, Dave? I think we're yes. both the same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it just detangled my brain and it allowed. And then I ended up writing all of Trebuchet after that, you know, and I didn't use, I didn't use any of the songs from the, the table of uh, the, the table of elements, except for one, 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 I used a, a Fermium was FM. And I wrote a song uh, and I used that for Sviatoslav Lobster because I just love this chord progression. And so I kind of stole, that's the only one that I stole from while, uh, while, working on the next record, everything else sort of still exists in itself. And it was just a, you know, it, it, it allowed you to be silly. It allowed you to be not really great. It allowed you to kind of outright steal style wise, like, Oh, Thorium, it's gotta be a Led Zeppelin style tune. Like Thorium is going to be Led Zeppelin. So you do kind of this Kmart version of, you know, come from the land of the ice and snow, but it's my version of that talking about Thorium, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, distilled from monazite. Obtained from Thorite, you know, um, and you're allowed because it's it's inconsequential. But at least you're writing, and at least you're sort of stretching stretching yourself and trying to just exercise. So, so yeah. it worked out really great. And by the end, I had this lovely hour and twenty hour and fifteen minute long. It's like this lost album of mine because it's you know it's seventy five minutes of music that's on there. And just recently, I, I finally did it live. Well, on YouTube, I. I performed it. I fixed some of them. I wrote six new ones because by the, since I finished it, they had discovered six, they had synthesized another seven elements, uh, 105, 110 through 118, whatever it was. And um, so I wrote that, wrote an opener, wrote a closer, and that exists on my YouTube channel now, which is kind of fun. So people can go check that out. Um, Occasional songs for the periodic table. And it was funny, I was working on the new record and I was working on vocals and lyrics for, for the songs because on this album, I did it backwards. I wrote all the music first. I, I had finished, completed tracks without any lyrics or vocals mm. or melodies. And then I went back and wrote all the vocals and melodies. And so I was kind of improvising and I came up with this part for this one song. And I thought, I'm stealing that from somewhere. Like, Because uh, that happens sometimes. You just start singing and there's maybe a right. similar chord progression or a similar timbre. And you try to be aware of that and, and not use stuff outright. You know, I'm thinking, I know this is something and I'm, I'm, and I'm starting to hunt for it. And it's hard to really find, you know, Shazam works sometimes, but it's hard just for a couple notes of a melody to find out what that is. And then I realized it was one of my elements. So I was stealing from myself. And I was right. like, okay, I'm allowed to do that. that that's cool. Sure. I, fine. It was <laughs> Samarium. I, I, had, I had started singing the beginning of Samarium. But to me, it was like, yeah, what is this? I know this from somewhere. Yeah, you wrote it, schmuck. So that was kind of cool. So I actually ended up accidentally stealing from myself, and now I'm suing myself, and hopefully we'll see what happens. Yeah, one of you will probably win. One of us will win, yes, hopefully. Yes. Hopefully, who knows? <laughs> I love that idea because uh, I've done that periodically back and forth through the last few years. If I get, if I'm not really creative, I'll do these 10-minute drawings. Problem. Like, okay, I'm only going to do Great. this for 10 minutes. Great. And it doesn't matter if it's any good uh, yeah. <laughs> because it's it only took 10 minutes. How good could it be? Yeah. Um, and it does it does really help just to, you know, reset your brain. Yeah. You know, it frees you, you up. Because there's, there's, this, there's this specter. There's this Damoclesian sword that hangs over you sometimes. And it's like, I'm going to do a significant work. 
here it comes. Here comes the best song I've ever written. And you go, eh, nothing's happening. It's just not good. That's a very difficult place to be. It's a right. very challenging kind of place to play, to put yourself in uh, with a blank piece of paper. But if you go, all right, I've got 10 seconds and it's got to be some kind of an animal. I got 10 minutes and it's going to be an animal. Or I'm going to use just, you know, a piece of chalk. Or I'm going to use, you know, ketchup. Okay, go. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, because it's, but again, you're doing something and right. anything is better than nothing, you know, which is another thing I've learned over the years. Like the crappiest song is better than the one that's perfect in your head. Yep. The the worst drawing and sketch or doodle, the worst set of lyrics that has been written down is a million times better than the one that's perfect in your brain that hasn't come out yet. And so yeah. you just got to put it down and then try another one and put it down, try another one. Yep. Yeah. And a lot of the people that, um, that I've met along the way on the online maker community say the same thing. They done is better than perfect. You know, you have oh my something, gosh. It's better than never starting. Yeah. Cause there is no perfect. Like perfect is impossible. Right. Like anything that you would look at and consider perfect, the person that made it, is not going to consider it perfect. Like I, I guarantee, I have. I, I don't think I've ever said, "Okay, that's that's perfect." That thing that I made. I mean, I've I've, you know, upper ninety percentile. I've gotten like yeah. occasionally you bounce in there somehow because all the planets line up. The syzygy occurs, and somehow you just get in the right the right place. And so you're like in the ninety second, ninety fifth, ninety seventh percentile. Maybe maybe if you're like incredibly fortunate, but to go this work is perfect, you know? No, it just, it's, and, and perfection is not a thing to, perfection is a thing to see, but it's the same way that you see the moon, you know? And it's like, we're not going to land on the moon as individuals. We're not going to land on the moon, Yeah, but you can let it inspire you. You can let it, you can let it be there. You can enjoy its luminescence, but it's, yeah, it's, it's like perfection is, is not the thing. So, Again, the the yeah, brain. I've talked about it years ago. Brain crack. That was the thing that was 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 taught to me by by uh, an early early video guy named Z Frank. He talked about brain crack, the most, and it's like you get this perfect idea in your head, and mm -hmm. it's just oh, it just hits all the neurons, and it just feels so good. And as soon as I get a good snare drum, I'm going to record this song because it's going to be perfect, man. It's going to be yep. perfect. And you get the good snare drum, and you're like, well, you know, if I got that that new mic with the, with the 759 processor on it, boy, then that's going to be really, okay. We get, and then you get that mic and you're like, well, you know what, since I've got the mic in this, I really some need some like wall baffling to make this really sound better and you never get it done, but it's perfect in your head. Yeah. But the crappiest thing recorded on your phone, recorded on a wire recorder with a, with a, a comb and a piece of wax paper is a billion times better than that perfect symphony in your in your head or that perfect painting or that perfect play in your head. So yeah, make the thing. Look at yeah. it. What's good about it? What's bad about it? Move on. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, that makes perfect sense. Uh, yeah, a lot of things, I just want to be happy. I'm happy if the thing that I made meets the expectations I had in my head, you know, knowing my skill level, you know? So it's like, mm -hmm. I, I don't expect anything, you know, I don't try not to compare whatever I'm making to anybody else, but myself, you know, my previous work. Right. 
Right. It's good. It's good to have comparisons. It's good to have goals. It's good to have people that inspire you. There's no question about that. Right. So what what what's your medium? What do you what do you draw in? Um. So I do a lot of uh, like uh, printmaking. So linoleum cut mm. printmaking is one of my things that I enjoy. Old pressing. school. Love it. Yeah. 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 It's just basically that. Uh, I I did it in high school and and I did it again in college for graphic design, and then I waited. 20, 30 years and started doing it again. So just one, it's one of the things, but I just do a lot of different, I've done some watercolor, some different, you know, uh, you know, just it's computer design. Just sure. Just try everything. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. And it's, again, what's lovely now is you can, you can get a, probably a $5 app that is some kind of printmaker facsimile, you know, it's like to just, to, to mess with designs and to do stuff like that, you know, um, you can experiment in ways. I mean, I have, I never did this, but I, you know, uh, Donna is info. I mean, she's, she was in, she worked for newspapers. So she's sure. been through almost every kind of printing that there's mm-hmm. been in the last, yeah. you know, chunk of time from mocking up things, you know, with literal ink on drums and cutting, cutting Lexan and all these like, you know, to, yep to the having it on your computer and being able to design three dimensional things, you know, in virtual spaces and having the printer in, you know, the printer at my knees here yeah, in 1970 would have been a $2 million printer. You know, it's like amazing. Yeah. The stuff that we have this like this full million color printer that I have that I bought for a hundred bucks is sitting right here, you know, this Epsom, whatever the hell it is um, that you would have, you would have given up any of your children for in 1980. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, uh, we for, we forget that sometimes. We forget that sometimes. You know, the uh, yeah, the, again, the capacity to. I have some idea in the car. I can just sing into this. Yep. You know, or I, you know, I've recorded podcasts into this thing, so it's like it's, you know, at the in the convenient because it just struck me as being able to do something. So yeah, it's 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 pretty amazing. Yep. Yeah, you can go from you know you can still go back to the simplest uh, hand tools and you know chopping down a tree with an axe or whatever, or you can right. use the most sophisticated right. uh, digital Husqvarna. Uh, yep. CNC yeah. robot, uh, assistant right. <laughs> tools. Totally. Totally. Cause they're all tools. That's, yep. that's the wonderful thing too, is that they're ultimately all tools, you know, so that the creativity and that's, what's interesting, isn't it? Like you would think mm-hmm. with the availability of recording, that there would be, and there is great music, but the people, you know, like the Beatles catalog, when they were, most of what they were doing was on four tracks, right. you know, in just the most analog basic thing, because they had to be unbelievably creative in the room. And then they mm-hmm. just kind of captured it. So like there yeah. isn't this, necess- you know, people, people worry about the machines sort of making creativity too easy. Yeah. And on some level it does, but it's so homogenized that it's not interesting. Right. You know, like I can recognize samples like I, oh, that's that drum sample. That's that keyboard thing. Like, you know, on a commercial, you hear something or someone will send me a, hey, I worked on this song. What do you think? And I'll be like, oh, okay, they're using that. There's the kick drum from that particular drum module, which I've heard a billion times. And, you know, and again, totally fine. But there is a homogenization that has occurred because the tools are so available and they're so good. And to me after a while it just it just all 
I talked about this on the podcast a while back, I think about just dr- like drum sounds. Again, I'm a drummer. I'm mm-hmm. schooled in, you know, drumming and know how to tune a drum and know how to hit a drum. And the technology's gotten so good in drum manufacturing, in head manufacturing, in pedagogy of teaching how to people how to hit drums and then how to record drums. It's gotten so great that every drummer has the ultimate drum sound and it all sounds the same. Right. It's like, yeah, it used to be like you would hear a drummer and you, you would say, oh, that's John Bonham. That's Bill Bruford. That's, you know, Sheila E. Mm-hmm. I know that I know that sound because that's that person. Whereas now sometimes you hear some, again, phenomenal players. I mean, just incredibly phenomenal players. But there is a homogenization of their sound because the techniques have gotten so good for recording. You know, so someone in their home studio has this amazing drum sound and it just sounds like every other amazing drum sound. And you go like, ooh, I want that kind of crappy, crunky, weird thing. You know, why is Jack White so successful? Jack White, you know, comes along and he's like, I'm going to record this on two tracks. It's going to be guitar and bass. And I'm I'm just going to put like, you know, old batteries covered in aluminum foil because it's going to make the tone all weird. And and it's like, oh, that sounds original and different and interesting. And it's not the best guitar sound at all. It's a terrible guitar sound sometimes, Mm -hmm. but it's so earnest. And and that's what comes across of like, oh, here's a creative guy. You're like doing a creative thing in the creative. Again, whether you like Jack White or not, whatever, but you can't deny it was this like original, interesting thing of like, I'm not going to pro tools this to death. I'm not going to do all this stuff. And that's, that's exciting when those kinds of people still sort of pop out amongst the homogenization. It's like, Ooh, yeah, sweet. Really cool. Yeah. There's definitely people who are out there who are just looking for, you know, setting limitations on themselves so that they can fuel their creativity because that's, you know. Oh, for sure. Yeah, deadlines. Deadlines are the best thing. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's that got me. That got me to finish this new record. I finally said, like, I got an I got a, a, an opportunity once a year. I'm I'm very I'm very fortunate. There's an organization called Ice House Tonight, which is an Ice House is a is the performance space here in Bethlehem. And uh, there's kind of a collective and every year they give me a concert. They're like, you can use the space for whatever you want. Once you one show a year. So this year's show was April 22nd and you know, they gave it to me, whatever, four or five months ago. And I went, okay, that's going to be a CD release concert. I, the songs aren't done. I haven't finished recording yet. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't written, I haven't written any of the melodies yet. I haven't written any of the words yet. I'm going to have, I'm going to have four months to do it and I'll have to do it because I'm going to start selling tickets. So like, okay, do it. You got to do it. And it's, it's worked. It's worked. Otherwise it's just like, Oh, I have, I have all the time in the world. I have all the time. Well, no, April 22nd, something's got to be ready because people are coming and it's the, that's the best incentive for me. Unfortunately, you know, where it's just like, no, we got to do a show. That's what, that's what's so great about the podcast every week, every week you got to do 45 minutes of whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes it's garbage, but sometimes it's fun and cool and interesting. People seem to dig it, which is, which is nice. But I know every week, Wednesday rolls along. I got to come up with stuff and talk about stuff. And it's now I can't not do it. You know, I've, uh, I took two weeks off back in June and it was weird, man. It was weird. (laughs) It was like the first time in 15 years. I took two weeks off. I've taken weeks off. I've never taken two weeks off. I thought like, whoa, just, yeah, no. So it's in me now, which is nice. And, um, yeah. So deadlines, constraints, um, Especially now with so many options, we have so many op- you know, design options. Like, oh my gosh, there's a million colors you can you can use in in you know 
whatever paint program you're using. Right. Sometimes you got to say four colors, six colors. You know, the be- yeah. some of the best uh, album covers of all time were were from Motown. Why? Because they had they could only use black and white photos, and they had two color printing. Right. And they didn't say, "Oh man, what are we?" It's like, well, no. How can we use this and make these iconic? album covers and they did it. And so now you see the stuff from Motown and you go, Oh yeah, boy, that's brilliant. And then it's, it's its own flavor, you know, one color printing, black and white photo, some graphic elements to it. Oh, there's a, 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 sorry, not Motown, Blue Note. I said Motown, Blue Note, the jazz label, Mm -hmm. the jazz label in the sixties basically said like, this is going to be our thing. This is like, this is all we can afford print wise, (laughs) Yeah, but it worked. And so you get these, you know, Thelonious Monk records and Coltrane records and they're just, you know, all red, black and white photo. And then these cool like triangles and you're like, damn, that looks amazing. Right. Timeless, timeless, you know, because of constraints. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you basically created a new style by using the constraints. Yeah. Yeah. Saul Bass, another guy, you know, like, oh, okay, we're going to just do black and white. Go. Cool. Well, I don't want to keep you all night. Uh, I do appreciate oh, so good. you this is fun. taking the time to talk to me. Um, where can people check out your stuff? So uh, George Hrab, luckily my name is unique enough. So my last name is H-R-A-B, George Hrab. If you Google that, the stock line is thirty. the first 36,000 things are me. But you can go to georgehrab.com. You can go to geologicpodcast.com. That's uh, where my weekly show is, where you can find stuff. If you go on YouTube, just put my name in there. You you can see that uh, whole Periodic Table of Elements show. Uh, And then if you're anywhere near Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, on April 22nd of this year, um, come on out to my CD release concert. You can go to georgecdrelease.eventbrite.com. Bright is spelled B-R-I-T-E, Eventbrite. GeorgeCDrelease.eventbrite.com. You can get tickets for that show. We're going to do an hour of music with a live band. And then we're going to actually spin the actual CD. We're going to move the chairs out of the way. The new album is called Terpsichore, which is the muse of dance. So we're going to have a dance party after the band's done, playing you know a bunch of my older tunes from my previous records. Then we're going to move the chairs out of the way. And we're going to have a dance party as we listen to all, whatever, 47 minutes of Terpsichore. So come on out April 22nd if you're around. Otherwise, just uh, check out the podcast or the YouTube channel or the whatever else you find under HRAB. Oh, that's great. All right. And uh, quick before we go, just want to thank the folks who support the show on Patreon. Uh, my top patrons are Matt from Artigiano Serio and Ed Johns. If you want to... Uh, see what that's all about you can go to patreon.com slash making problems to solve where you'll get to hear a little bit more with my guest in the after show uh if you can't support the show or <laughs> don't feel like it you can always leave a review uh, or share the show with a friend uh thanks a lot for uh talking to me today matt and ed way to go way to support this guy let's get some thanks. people in that list there huh come on matt ed you guys are cool you're the coolest in class no question Thanks, Dave. This is a lot of fun. Thank you.